Well, happy 4th of July, everybody. Are you not thrilled that you live in a free country to be able to do this? That awesome? I'm excited today for, it doesn't happen very often, but over here, my whole family is here. Uh, all, all the grandkids, even Arvin, Arvin's clapping for you guys. Yay, he's our Arizona, if you remember the hand, hand sanitizer video, that's the star. That is him. Well, because we live in the country we live in, dreams have been released like crazy across the United States. But the ultimate dream releaser above any dreams that have happened in the United States of America, the ultimate dream releaser is Jesus Christ. And he wants to release dreams inside of you just as he has throughout all of the scripture. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 and it should be printed on your outline that you could have picked up over here. We're going to work our way through this story that may be familiar to a lot of you. We're going to look at how Jesus released the dreams of three particular guys. It starts out one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now that lake in scripture is sometimes called the Sea of Tiberias. Most commonly it's called the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was about seven miles wide. 13 miles long, 682 feet below sea level, and it was surrounded by thousands of foothills. Luke goes on. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now here's the picture. Jesus gaining huge popularity. I mean, no one had ever heard anyone teach like this guy. No one had ever seen the miracles that he performed. And crowds were swarming to hear him teach. With no room and no place to sit because of all the people, Jesus gets into the boat, pushes out a little far from shore, uses the whole area as a natural amphitheater with the foothills, and from that boat he taught. And the boat belonged to a guy named Simon. Luke chapter 5 is not the first time we find Simon Peter as he encountered Jesus, but his name was not always Simon Peter, it was just Simon. Simon, the brother of Andrew, Andrew had been following John the Baptist for months, if not years. He had seen Jesus one day, and he goes and tells his brother, he goes back home, and he says, listen, Simon, I found this guy that I believe is the long-awaited Messiah. You got to come hear this guy teach. You got to come meet this guy. So he brings Simon to meet Jesus, and Jesus takes one look at Simon, and he says, oh, man, I got to give you a nickname. You're Rocky. You're Rocky. From that point on, he looks at this guy who is 
formerly known as Simon, and names him Petros, which means rock, the rock. From that point on, Andrew and Peter start following Jesus, but not wholeheartedly. But that's about to change. Verse 4, it says, when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out a little farther into the deep water, let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, we worked, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Three central characters in this story, Peter, James, and John. And they would be three guys that Jesus would release their dreams and ultimately use to change the world. Now, when it says Jesus had finished teaching, he then says, hey, let's go fishing. And I think it's pretty cool that Jesus preached and fished in the same clothes, all right? You might not think about that, but it's already always frustrated me over the years that I got to put on all these fancy clothes to preach when Jesus never really did, all right? He fished and he preached in the same clothes. And what I love most about him is he entered into the ordinary lives of ordinary people. If Peter would have been a truck driver, Jesus would say, hey, Peter, let's go for a drive. If Peter would have been a CEO, he said, hey, Peter, why don't, why don't, why don't we do lunch? But Peter's a fisherman, so Jesus says, hey, let's go fishing. Peter's reaction is great. You want, is great. He says, you want to do what? We just got done fishing. Jesus, we fished all night long. We're wore out. We're frustrated. Besides that, it's morning. The sun is dancing on the water. We're not going to catch any more fish. Jesus, you're crazy. You know, I respect that you're a carpenter. You're a rabbi. I respect that. But the truth is, Jesus, you know preaching, and I know fishing. You know preaching, I know fishing. You ever felt that way in life? Felt like maybe God knows all about the spiritual stuff, religious stuff. God knows all about heavenly things like prayer, hymns, steeples. But when it comes to running your business, as it comes to running your life, when it comes to raising your kids, when it comes to basic life issues, sometimes it feels like God's not there, like he's out of touch. Well, that's where Peter is in this. And when Jesus makes the request to go fishing, he's not talking about going on a little fishing trip with a Zepco rod and reel and a red and white bobber. This is big time fishing. This is commercial fishing. These guys did this for their livelihood, for their income. And they were worn out, frustrated. They had heavy boats, heavy nets. Many of you might know, but they would go out in these heavy boats with these heavy nets with weights all around the edge of the net. And they would cast those nets onto the sea. And it would float down, cover up the fish. Then they'd have to haul. They didn't have, uh, you know, modern day machinery. They'd have to haul those nets up from the bottom of the lake. And when they did, those nets would be filled with sticks, seaweed, rocks, all kinds of things. And they had just finished cleaning those nets. They're all clean. They're all done. They're wore out. And verse 5, 
Jesus says, hey, let's go fishing again. Let's go fishing. Let's dirty up those nets again. And Simon answered, Master, Master. Now, it's important to know this is the first time in all of the New Testament that that word is used. Epistatus is the word in Greek, which means master. It's not the same as rabbi. It's not the same as teacher. It's not the same as instructor. Master here means you've got authority. I respect you. I respect you. He says, master, you got authority. I respect you. We've worked all night and we haven't caught anything. And here's the key. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. This is huge. Peter's a pro. Peter knows fishing. He knows this particular lake. He knows the odds aren't good to catch any fish, especially farther from shore. Nevertheless, he's seen Jesus in action. And he says, you know, I wouldn't do this for anybody else. But because it's you, Jesus, I'll do it. Peter would learn this day that that phrase was the key to life. That phrase was the key to life. Saying, Master, because you say so. Master, because you say so. As we've done a couple times as we've been out here, this goes way back to my roots as a, as a little kid when I'm outside. Look up at the sky, if you will, towards the heavens. Go ahead and look up there. And I want you to say that key phrase. Master, because you say so. Go ahead. Now say it like you mean it, all right? Look up there again. You know what you're saying. Say it again. Master, that is the key to life as a believer in Jesus Christ. I love the quote from Anne Lamont. She says, the Gulf Stream will flow through a straw, provided the straw is aligned to the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream will flow through a straw, provided the straw is aligned to the Gulf Stream. In other words, God can do anything through anybody who's willing to align themselves to his wisdom, to his power, to his glory, who will say, Master, because you say so. Well, Peter does that. He does what Jesus asks, and Jesus blows these guys away with an incredible fish story. Anybody got a fish story that nobody else would believe? Come on, nobody? No big fish story? I got, I've got a lot, a lot. I love to fish, don't do it very often, um, but I love to fish. Years and years and years ago, when I was really, really young, and Brenna as well, we were in youth ministry for years. And one of the things I like to do every summer is take the teens on a mission trip, and we would go, and this was when we were in Ohio, we traveled to North Carolina to a church camp, worked all week at that church camp, cleaning weeds and everything else. And in the mornings, I would have a quiet time for the, for the teenagers. And they had a lake there. And I'd instruct them all to get in their own canoe, go out onto the lake, like 100 
feet away from anybody else's canoe and spend some quiet time with God. And we did the same. And I remember it until the day I die. This is a field and stream kind of story. I was in my canoe, no fishing pole. It's this kind of fishing story, all right? No fishing pole. And I was paddling across the lake, quiet, still. And then I heard, whoosh, pow. I'm not lying. A six-pound bass jumped out of the water and into my canoe. Is that not awesome? That's not the greatest fish story you've ever heard. You say, well, what did you do with a six-pound bass? I did what every great fisherman would do. I filleted him, and I fed the whole team that night supper with that, that six-pound. It might have been eight-pound, all right? No, it was, it was huge. And the essence of that was I learned there was a, a little, like, mound in that lake. And I must have went right straight across that little mound, which was about that deep. And he jumped in to the, to the canoe. Well, this is a fish story. What happens with Peter? He agrees to go out and drop the nets out of courtesy to his new fishing buddy. And when they start to pull the nets up, all of a sudden, their muscles start to bulge. Their eyes start to pop out. A smile comes across their face. And the nets begin to break. He signals for his partners in the other boat to come and help. And when they pull this nets, these nets up, the text says that there were so many fish, they were spilling over the sides of the boat, and the boat was starting to sink. And Peter, James, and John were astonished by this catch. Verse 8 says that Peter fell at Jesus' knees. He fell in a pow of smelly fish. And he says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I don't even deserve to be in the same boat with you. And in that moment, Peter sees all of Jesus' power, all of Jesus' purity, all of Jesus' goodness. And I would have loved to have been in that boat when Jesus smiled at Peter, reached down, grabbed him by the hand, and said, come on, get up, man. Get up, man. And he says to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch and that word catch there literally means rescue. From now on, you will rescue men. You will rescue men. So they pulled, up their, they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. Jesus said to these guys, I choose you. I want you to help me rescue people. And they left everything, including their record catch. Jesus saw enormous potential in people. He saw potential in people that no one else saw because Jesus was able to look beyond who they were to who they could become. Do you know when, the mine, when gold is mined, when they mine gold, gold, that you literally have to move tons of dirt in order to find one ounce of gold. The key is, you don't go in looking for dirt. You go in looking for gold. God has always seen gold in people, no matter who they are. Look at over the Old Testament, people that God used. Moses stuttered. Abraham was old. 
David was too young. Solomon was too rich. Naomi was too poor. Jonah ran from God. Timothy had ulcers. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon doubted. Martha worried too much. Noah got drunk too much. Paul was a murderer. John the Baptist was just flat out weird, right? He used all of these nobodies to rock the world. And he takes these three guys on this boat, shows them that they need to follow him, and he releases their dream. There is an overwhelming feeling that comes over us when we are chosen by God. When somebody picks us, even in life. I remember back at recess, maybe we were playing kickball or something, and they were choosing teams. How'd it feel to be the last one picked? Not very good. It doesn't feel good to not be wanted. But we are loved by an almighty God. He chose pe people like Peter, James, and John, ordinary guys. It's a great feeling to be chosen by God. God has plans for you. You. There's nobody here gathered in this park that God doesn't have plans for, that isn't wanted, that isn't needed by God. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 from the message. He says, long before he laid down the earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in doing this. He wanted us to enter into a celebration of his lavish gift given by the hand of his beloved son. Listen close. You are the focus of God's love. You are. Say it with me. I am the focus of God's love. Say it. I. And when you're the focus of somebody's love, when you're chosen, it means somebody wants you. You are desired. You are loved. You belong. You're no longer disconnected. You have huge potential regardless of your past. Huge potential regardless of your inadequacies regardless of your potential for failure. Somebody believes in you. And when you believe that about Jesus Christ, it changes the way you approach life. It changes the way you walk through life, knowing that you're loved and you're wanted by God. Old basketball movie called Glory Road was based on a true story. In 1965, during an intense time of our country, an unknown coach by the name of Don Haskins took an unknown school called Texas Western, recruited a bunch of guys that nobody else wanted, and released a dream in them. In fact, they actually won the 1965 NCAA basketball tournament with a historic, historic upset of the University of Kentucky. He was a dream releaser. Much like Jesus, Jesus recruited guys just like that. 
He recruited guys that nobody else wanted, that nobody else saw potential in, and they were on the same team, a dream team. And Jesus would use that team to change the world. Why would Jesus invest so much time in apparent losers, nobodies? Because he never saw them that way. He never saw them that way. That's the way I want to be. I want to look at people and not see them as they are perceived to be, but see them as what they could become by the power of Jesus Christ. Jazz King Duke Ellington was said to have written much of his compositions with each of his band members in mind. And he said this, you keep their weaknesses in your head as you write. That way you can astonish them with their strengths. You keep their weaknesses in your head. That way you can astonish them with their strengths. Jesus put together this ragtag band of unique guys with glaring weaknesses and absolutely astonished them with the strengths, their strengths. Peter never dreamed he could preach like that. John never dreamed he could love like that. James never dreamed he could lead like that. But three years later, over in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, these very same guys, Peter and John, were brought before the religious council of Jerusalem for preaching about the resurrected Jesus. And here's what Luke says in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. I love this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. These guys never dreamed that they would become dream makers, dream releasers. And you and I are gathered here today because of those losers that Jesus transformed. We're here today because of those guys. It was said in the first century that these guys were turning the world upside down. Their potential got released. Their dreams got released. Purpose began to surge through their veins. Courage flooded into their souls. And they were making a difference in the world. And that's God's dream for you. God's dream for you would be for you to understand that you are chosen by a holy God. You are wanted, you are needed by God to make a difference in this world with the one and only life that God's given you. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, again from the message, but you are the ones chosen by God chosen for the high calling of a priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others night and day of the difference he's made in you. From nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. You see who wrote that? Peter. 
that fisherman guy. Peter, he became one of the greatest players ever to take part in sharing Jesus and became somebody he never dreamed he could be because somebody instilled in him that he could make a contribution. Jesus believed in these guys, invested in these guys, and he wants to do the same for you and me. There's no difference. He wants to release a dream in you so that you can make a difference in this world for the cause of Jesus Christ. I want you to look at these truths. I've handed them out to you like I did a few weeks ago. These are compelled from a bookmark from Freedom in Christ Ministries. I just want this to wash over you as you hear these words because this is who you are when you were in Christ and Christ is in you. This is who you are. Go ahead and stand with me as I read this. Again, this is who you are when you are in Christ and Christ is in you. I am God's child. I am Christ's friend. I have been justified. I am united with the Lord. I am one spirit with him. I have been bought with a price. I belong to God. I am a member of Christ's body. I have been adopted as God's child. I have been forgiven of my sins. I am complete in Christ. Because he is in me, he is more than enough. Because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me, I am totally secure. I am assured that God works all things together for good. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I've been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am confident that God will finish the good work that he started in me. I am a citizen of heaven. I am hidden with Christ. I have not been given a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and self-discipline. I can find mercy and grace in time of need. Because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me, I am deeply significant. I am the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I am a temple of God. I am a minister of reconciliation for God. I am God's workmanship, created to do good works. I may approach God with freedom and confidence. Read the last two sentences with me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because he is more than enough.